there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Peter Dirksen performs as soloist on both harpsichord and organ as and uh, Peter Dirksen performs as soloist on both harpsichord and organ and is a continual player uh, with diverse uh, chamber ensembles. He completed his musicological studies with honors in 1987 and since then published widely about Baroque keyboard music. In 1996, he received his doctorate cum laude with a dissertation on the keyboard music of Jan Peterson Sveling, which was awarded the Dutch Premium Erasmianum. Further books have been devoted to Bach's Art of Fugue, Sveling, and Scheidemann, and critical editions appeared uh, with music by Bull, Sveling, Cornet, Scheidemann, Duben, Buxtehude, Reinken, Lübeck, and Bach. Continuous research into the background and the sources of the music lend the performances of Peter Dirksen a special quality. Peter Dirksen is a member of Combatimento Consort Amsterdam, as well as the chamber music group La Suave Melodia. He appeared in most European countries, the United States and Canada, and regularly gives master classes in chamber music and keyboard playing. He teached at the Organ Summer Academies in Harlem, Göteborg, and Smarano, and is affiliated with the organ research at the Göteborg Organ Art Center in Sweden. As a soloist, he specializes in the rich 17th century North German uh, and North European particularly uh, repertoire, as well as in the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Among his numerous recordings, the one devoted to the reconstruction of the earliest version of Bach's Art of Fugue, and the complete recording of Swelling's keyboard music, in which he participated both as a player and musicologist, stand out in particular. The latter was rewarded the highest Dutch prize, the Edison. So, in today's conversation, uh, we talked about uh, the keyboard uh, and organ music uh, by Sveling and Scheidemann. Uh, and we touched uh, the subjects of uh, Samuel Scheid and Johann Adam Reinken as well. And in general about uh, the, the musical scene in, in Hamburg in those days, as well as in, in Amsterdam. So uh, I hope you will be so much inspired by this conversation. I know I will, uh, because... Um, uh, because uh, Peter shares some of the tremendously wonderful insights about how you, as an organist of today, can continue to uh, further this uh, swelling tradition, which is, uh, what, now 500 years old, probably, and uh, can learn from their techniques and apply even them even in your uh, service player as well in the 21st century. Let's go to the show. Peter, I'm so delighted that uh, we're having this conversation live and, uh, um, you know, we first met in 2000 in, in Sweden, Gothenburg Organ Academy, um, and I heard uh, this 
amazing performance of yours uh, where you played the harpsichord uh, and performed complete uh, art of fugue um, this was very very uh, intriguing and i would say revolutionary performance so thank you so much for sharing your generosity and time and insights with us and uh, i hope uh, people around the world will feel inspired thank you so much and welcome to the show thank you for your kind words Great. So mm, let's talk a little bit about um, your main area of expertise, probably. Um, the, th the thing that interests me the most uh, is how you combine various uh, periods of uh, historical um, keyboard and organ playing. For example, 17th century, you are very much at home, and even 18th century, even earlier, um, you're such a great scholar where it comes in Svelink and, and uh, Scheidemann as well. So, um, I was planning to have this conversation about uh, Scheidemann's organ music. So, uh, because Scheidemann is, uh, is such a uh, very colorful figure and his music is or was not very uh, well known among general organist uh, circles, but it is not so today, of course. Uh, uh, I hope that Scheidemann is very much... Uh, um, uh, he has this uh, prominent place in North German organ repertoire. How do you feel about Heinrich Scheidemann? Well, of course, I came on this track and became more and more interested because of my uh, big topic, Swelling. And, um, well, I gradually had so much material. After actually already gathered during my years of writing of my dissertation on, on Sweeling, so it was relatively easy to, to go on with him. And actually he's the most interesting pupil of Sweeling I find. Um, it's not so much biographical material, but on the other hand there's so much music of him, uh, which has really which is really approaching the same quality as Sweeling has in his music. So but it's, it's also diff very different in character. You Absolutely. See, you can clearly see where he got his composition technique from. Uh, he was well informed and Swaling is really behind his music. But still, he had an independent mind and he went his own way, which is very interesting. I think he has a very different character from Swaling mm. in his face. Yes, and Zwelling, of course, uh, uh, they they called Zwelling uh, uh, the the maker of German organist, right? Uh, uh, Deutscher Organistenmacher. So this title is is sort of a legendary title for today's world, right? And uh, what does it mean to be the maker of German uh, organist uh, uh, in your mind, for for example? Well, Zwelling uh, uh, just somehow got his reputation of being a fabulous organist, but what is also important, he had uh, devised a system to compose very well for keyboard instruments, especially the organ, and this was one of the main attractions. It was not only the playing, because there were fine players around in, in more places, but this combination of being a top organist and also one who has had developed a, a new kind of keyboard program. Uh, keyboard composition program, which that was uh, what attracted so many students, especially from Germany. 
So yes, uh, um, Svelink's music probably, since we are touching this uh, this topic, of course, we cannot really talk about uh, or discuss Scheidemann without touching Svelink, right? Because they are very much connected. So before uh, talking about Scheidemann's uh, uh, music and his style and compositions, let's uh, touch a little bit where he got these ideas from Svelink and uh, and probably even beyond, right? So uh, so Svelink, this prominent figure from from Amsterdam, Oudekerk. Um, uh, he started his ideas a very very interesting way uh, to he combined something right uh, what are the main stylistic influences that uh, uh, Jan Peterson Sveling had on his music for example um, well the main thing is of course is this new kind of keyboard for listening Sveling was very keen on writing something which had a kind of same polyphonic quality as, as the great vocal tradition of the 16th century, the, the great Netherlands uh, Franco-Flemish tradition, which is not entirely just because there were also many Italians and, and French composers uh, participating in it. But still, this vocal tradition uh, had a, come to an enormous mastery of counterpoint, and he wanted to try to create something equal. It was not there yet. Uh, keyboard writing tended to be freer, to be more homophonic, but he wanted to achieve that same quality of uh, polyphonic writing, which was usually influential, and also very much so on a composer like Scheidemann. Yes, so this polyphonic quality, which was probably more more of a vocal uh, quality, he picked up from 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 what from Italian sources mainly from, I would say, Zarlino, right, um, and uh, and. Uh, uh, he, he, what else he added? Uh, probably these figurations, right? What were these figurations come from? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that's a mixture of uh, different influences. Uh, Sweden was very well informed about Italian keyboard music of his time. Uh, you mentioned the Ruta, but all these Venetian composers like Padovano, Nerullio uh, and um, Gabrielli, he knew very well, intimately. And then he got his connection with the English school. And you can say that this keyboard music is, on the basis of what he knew about folk polyphony, he's trying to combine these two main traditions into something new, and something very um, attractive. So he, he took the the best futures of both traditions and makes out of something very new. Yeah, uh, this vocal quality of his polyphonic works, especially for performed on keyboard, uh, on any kind of keyboard probably, uh, makes us uh, performers want to sing this music, right? Not only play, but each melody is sort of very independent and very gentle and uh, singable. Reminds me of melodies that Johann Sebastian Bach sometimes created, doesn't it? Yes, of course. Now you mention uh, the big uh, name in organ. Uh, of course, it's not thinkable without this achievement of Swelling. If, if you look at a fugue of Bach or a fantasy of Swelling, you see the same quality of line. There is not, there is no superfluous voicing anywhere. It's, it's always singable. 
phrases are ended within voices, independent of each other, and that's very much also a quality of the keyboard music of Bach. And this really goes back to what Swirling um, uh, made in the beginning of the 17th century. And uh, for people who are, uh, for example, just encountering music of Swelling, what you, would you recommend as the first start to play, uh, to start to listen to or to play? For example, your opinion—it's really fascinating to hear. Well, in the in the 100 or more years that Swelling has been played and recorded and everything, a uh, few pieces stand out, and that's not without reason. Uh, I think of. My name is Lebenhattan End, which has this fabulous, very simple, but very effective and affecting melody. And, well, Swaling uh, was really inspired by this melody, I think. And this beautiful set out of it, which is really uh, outstanding, especially in the period. You're talking about the famous uh, variation cycle, uh, right? Mein Junges Leben hat ein End, uh, in English, uh, Mine Young Life, uh, has ended, right, basically? Uh, something like that. Uh, do you know in which period of Swelling life um, did he compose this fabulous cycle? Well, uh, we don't uh, know that exactly, but uh, you can... Uh, uh, construct from a various variety of indications that Swelling starts to compose late, and that this work is from, like from the, the middle periods of his composing. He starts to compose when he was only 40 or 42. We don't know it exactly, but it, it must have been in the um, in the 17th century rather than the 16th, and. Um, he achieved mastery really quickly. There are no beginner's work in this. There's, there's no primitive music. And this one is, I think, from his really, uh, his golden period of composing, when he composed also most of his uh, celebrated folk of songs, which is around 17, 1612, 1613, I think. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And of course, you mentioned, uh, uh, probably, uh, we should mention, the chromatic fantasy, right? Fantasia chromatica. Uh, so, can you tell us a little bit uh, about this f uh, fantastic work uh, that lasts oh, like over seven minutes, right? And and has so many uh, polyphonic contrapuntal tricks and magical uh, devices that a regular uh, concert goer would probably miss, but we as performers probably adore this kind of intricacy, right? Yes, and now you mentioned a piece which has really something special about it, even within uh, Swain's oeuvre. Um, this piece really has a, um, a quality which uh, listeners pick up easily, is my experience in concert, because it is so perfect in construction. And somehow, listeners sense that too. It's not only the players who can see the music and who have studied the structure and everything and are uh, um, indulged in all these polyphonic uh, mastery and strategy and everything. So the technical side is fascinating. The proportions are perfect. And these proportions you somehow sense as a listener. That's my experience because it's, uh, it's, it's made from, from one piece, this, this, this uh, fantasia. Mm -hmm. 
It's also very special because it's based on uh, a purely chromatic theme, huh? descending chords we call it, and this descending uh, chromatic theme is actually the first time in instrumental music. Vocal music was sooner with chromaticism, especially in relation with certain kinds of text, of course. But in, in instrumental music, uh, chromatic pieces tended to be experimental, uh, just something uh, a little shocking. Mm -hmm. And here it's integrated completely in the composition. And that's it's quite an amazing step in Western music, I think, which is, is, uh, which is inherent in this fantasia. This chromatic fantasia, does this require a special kind of keyboard, you know, with these additional split semitones, uh, or not? No, definitely not, because uh, actually uh, my idea is that most of the fantasias of swing are written for organ, and there are a few exceptions, one of them is this one, because it is written for mean tone tuning, it needs this strong character of uh, unequal steps, half-tone steps, um, for this chromatic character to come out, and also the chords. But then you, of, of course, need to tune your upper keys in, in one pitch. So, uh, the C-sharp cannot be a D-flat, it's C-sharp only, and it's pure on A, etc. But then on the organs, you had always an E-flat rather than a D-sharp. But this, in this case, you need a D-sharp. Definitely. So on a harpsichord, of course, you can easily tune that down, and then you have this D sharp, which gives the proper character to the piece as a whole. Mm. And there was also some other features in this piece which point to the harpsichord, but most of the details are made for the organ, and then he avoids this D sharp feeling. Mm. Well, you mentioned, of course, this great variation cycle, Mein Junges Leben hat ein End, but many people associate. Um, Swelling with the piece, which probably is not by Swelling, Balletto by Del Granduco, right? Can you tell us yes. a little bit uh, the the controversy? I remember writing an article about this Balletto, right? And you responded, "Oh, it's a beautiful piece, but sadly not by Swelling." That's how I remember. So please uh, tell us a little bit about Balletto. Yes, this this. I discovered while uh, writing up my dissertation because, of course, you have to deal with um, like the margin of the, the oeuvre, uh, the margin where you have doubts about the authenticity of pieces. But in the case of Swaling, it is actually rather remarkable that there is a rather large repertoire of big pieces, like the Chromatic Fantasia or My Young Sleeper Had an End, or many other ones which are clearly by him, very well preserved, so there is no doubt about it. And um, this particular piece, Valletta de la Gran Duca, this is a very attractive piece, I don't uh, uh, discuss that, I won't argue about that. But it is not by him, because it's a very late source, and in this source you see pieces by Samuel Scheidt, another important pupil of Sweden, side by side with pieces by the master, his master Sweden. And um, some of the contributions we know from other sources, so they are okay, but otherwise you think they got mixed up. And in one case you can, it is, you can prove that he mixed up uh, attributions. 
And this is explainable because the source is from like 1670 or so. So Swelik was dead for over half a century and Scheidemann also for 20 years. So um, things were not so clear anymore. Mm. And if you compare Valletta Randuca with uh, the music of Swelik and Scheid, it much more clearly belongs to the Scheid style mm -hmm. as Swelik. And Scheid is, is a good composer, but rather different from Swelik, a, a bit more um, robust, uh, less refined, but it has, it has a quality of its own. And that you can see in this Valladolid Luca. So, uh, organists of the world, please play this piece under the name of Scheidt. Okay, Samuel Scheidt will direct that. And of course, w once w since you mentioned Samuel Scheidt, we cannot really uh, dismiss his fabulous collection called uh, Tabulatura Novo, right? And this particular uh, Balletto del Granduca reminds me then um, uh, with a, uh, a piece from, from this Tabulatura Nova um, variation cycle called Ach du Feine Reuter, right? Does it have any similarities to your mind too? Yes, it's, it's the same key. Um, melody is a little bit related and you see the same procedures. Balletta de Granduca is on a smaller scale, which you think added to its attractiveness because mm -hmm. it's fun to add to a recital or it's just five minutes and it has, it's very effective. While after final writer is much longer and of course also needs much more work and uh, practice. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. But uh, nevertheless, both pieces are tremendously effective uh, for, for, uh, for organ music lovers of all ages, probably. Agreed. Yes, Scheidt was uh, very um, uh, fond of Swelling's music. You can hear echoes of Swelling's music everywhere. He took the same, often the same melodies to arrange the same models, the same procedures. But um, well, but seen from a German perspective, I think his music. Yeah, and um, and of course. Uh, how about uh, the music uh, of uh, uh, Johann Adam Reinken, right? He, he is a little bit different figure from Scheidt, right? Different um, sensitivity, I would say, even uh, even polyphonic uh, treatment is, is a little um, a little uh, sort of maybe more more refined, right? Uh, so uh, this is also the Swelling school, but. Uh, what are the difference between Scheidt and uh, Reinken's work, for example, in short? Oh, Scheidt and Reinken's work. Yes, Scheidt published his Tablatura Nova in Hamburg, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Because you see echoes in the Hamburg organists, and where several pupils of Swelik active in Hamburg uh, churches at the time. You see that even in Scheidemann, though he was very independent and made, made it into his own thing. Uh, Reinken was a, definitely a pupil of Scheidemann and became his successor at uh, St. Catherine in, in uh, Hamburg. Uh, it's a bit, bit of a puzzling figure because so little music of his remains. Mm -hmm. Some of you know that he published some organ music at the beginning of the 18th century, but that has been lost. And he's really a Enkel Schuler, so second generation yeah. pupil of Swelling. And what we have of him is, is a fabulous quality in these two choral fantasias. I can recommend to every organist to 
practice and take on their repertoires. So, so of course, this second generation a legacy of uh, Jan Peterson's Welling continues throughout North Germany, right? And, uh, um, of course, it reaches uh, the age of Buxtehude, right? Also, uh, through, through probably... Uh, probably Reinkind as well, but I'll also uh, a little bit of Weckmann and others, because Lübeck and Hamburg were very much connected to these circles, right? Um, but Buxtehude is somewhat different from, from I would say, these ha- uh, Hamburg circles, right? Weckmann and Sche- Scheidemann, right? Yes, uh, uh, Buxtehude, that's, of course, a very important case, because uh, was the most popular composer for organ from the 17th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anyone plays something from before Bach, it's usually pleased by Buxtehude. And there is some sense to it because his uh, organ music is very varied, so that makes sense. But it's very interesting to realize that Buxtehude cannot be anything else than also a pupil of Scheidemann. And he studied together with uh, Reinken in Hamburg in the 1650s. But Buxtehude was like Scheidemann a bit in relation to Swaling. Mm-hmm. Picked up uh, many things from Scheidemann. You can see it in his early works clearly reflected. They are a continuation. But he soon turned another way mm-hmm. and uh, made things uh, differently. So he was uh, really in an independent mind. And I think that uh, also is very typical of the Swaling school that you have really original minds. And of course, from Swaling, there was a direct line to, to running to Bach, if you mentioned uh, Reinken and Buxtehude. He, he knew them both personally and he was a great fan of their music and of their organ playing improvisations. Yes, uh, these uh, these connections through through Scheidemann, right, and Reinken uh, goes goes forth into the next century, right, next uh, 18th century, and Bach picked up uh, visiting Hamburg uh, a few times. Uh, it's amazing uh, how Scheidemann learned uh, uh, the art from 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 Swelling. And uh, can you talk a little bit? Uh, how he became independent from Swelling, right? Because he, he uh, learned some basic polyphonic uh, techniques, right? But he became so much independent in his own way, right? Yes. A very important is uh, the background he has in Hamburg and the Hamburg organ. Uh, in the 16th century, around 1554, I think, uh, Hamburg uh, became an organ from the same builder as the organ in the Oude Kerk in Amsterdam where uh, Swaling was organized. So it was the same organ, almost a copy, uh, made by Niehoff. So with three manuals, three divisions, Oberwerk, uh, Hauptwerk and Rekursitiv. And uh, then it's very important, the difference uh, while the Amsterdam organ had only a trumpet and a pedal, it was had pull downs. In Hamburg, uh, Niehoff constructed already uh, pedal towers and had these pedals at stops. So that was a requirement in Hamburg as an addition. So this idea of a very independent pedal comes from Hamburg and doesn't come from Swaling so much. Mm-hmm. From Swaling, it was like a help, an addition for some. 
comes with famous lines, for example, but in Hamburg it had a much more important function. And that was incorporated into Scheidemann's music very much because the obligato pedal is very important. And that's difference right so so this swelling style uh, with uh, with much more refined manual techniques and just a few pedal obligato parts uh, uh, probably uh, helps us to play swelling's music on any keyboard music just uh, using five uh, ten fingers right uh, but that's not the case with Scheidemann you cannot really play Scheidemann's Fantasias or Magnificat si cycles without the real uh, pedal part division, right? No, there, there are a few uh, chorale settings by Swalik, which you, where you need pedal as well, but there are, most of them you can only play on, on like a one-manual organ or a one-manual harpsichord with no problem. This uh, idea of making use of the organ very idiomatically, so that you use two manuals and then you can cross your hands and add a pedal to it, which also crosses, for example, the left hand. It's all, it's all um, a new element of color, which mm -hmm. is very important. So, talking about the pedal uh, in Scheidemann's, for example, mind, uh, was it like uh, for, for um, Samuel Scheid, who said, uh, pedal is like another hand, right? Um, uh, like the third hand. Or was it something more, even more developed uh, for Scheidemann? Yeah, but it's interesting. Scheitz says that, but he, he doesn't use it so much in exactly. that way. Uh, he basically writes, still writes just for two hands without pedal, and then he says, well, you can use the pedal now and then. Mm -hmm. But you have to, to make make that up for yourself. See, perhaps you can take out the Cantus Firmus line, sometimes the bass you can play on the pedal, but it's not part of the composition. He's still thinking very much into the, in the line of swelling what he had uh, learned in Amsterdam. But Schademann is, is, is uh, much more original in that way because he um, starts to think differently about organ composition. Mm -hmm. uh, so he writes organ music which you cannot play on smaller instruments or on the harpsichord anymore. True. You know what, what fascinates me about uh, the, the works of uh, um, uh, Scheidemann is that his amazing uh, uh, echo effects between the manuals, right, B which were written before in, even in, in uh, uh, Scheid's works and uh, to some degree in, in Swelling's, but Scheidemann, he, what he does probably is so revolutionary. He explores all three or even four manuals available at the time in Hamburg. Yes, that's, that's of course an extension of this thinking, new thinking about organ writing, which is so important to, uh, in the history of uh, the music for our instruments. And this particular example of echo writing, of course, he had that from Sweden. Swaying for echo fantasias, but the, the echoes are usually only in one hand. What he does is combine everything. He, he, he makes echoes uh, on in both hands, simultaneously sometimes, but sometimes independently. And then uh, he goes even further uh, by adding a pedal counterfamous line to it, for example, in scoral fantasias. So then you have two kind of three different layers. And this kind of combination work, this Ars Combinatoria, 
it's very typical of Shadimal's thinking. He uh, draws things together and makes something new out of it. For modern-day organists who are working, uh, for example, regular church positions, right, playing services and masses and other things liturgically, and they have some to play some uh, uh, chorale or hymn to hymn playing um, uh, in four parts, like usual, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Can they learn something from Swelling as well? This disposition of parts, where where cantus firmus can be placed in any voice, right? Is it possible to experiment in today's world also? Uh, Do you think? Well, in any voice, the tenor is very important. That's the thing which you should learn actually as an organist, not only to harmonize something in the top voice, but also which uh, was one of the main requirements of the organist, that they could harmonize four parts with, with the pedal playing a tenor line. You see, these melodies often just fit perfectly on the pedal boards, on the pedal trumpets. So that was a basic requirement of, of these organists. And, uh, well, if they uh, want to, to learn about Schademann's music, on the one hand you have smaller pieces which are very attractive, like the Briambula, which are actually ideal liturgically introducing pieces, very well written. Um, the smaller chorale settings, there are many of them, also smaller Magnificat settings are there. And then, if you are starting to get interest, because there's so much beautiful music there already, they could go to Shariman's main achievements, so to top, so to speak, which are these large chorale fantasias. And there are also many chorale fantasias in the Magnificat settings, which are really beautiful pieces. You touched the topic of uh, Magnificent settings and uh, of course anybody who tried to look at these uh, cycles of eight, uh, of four pieces, right, in, in eight different uh, uh, church tunes or psalm tunes basically uh, would, uh, would find some kind of um, systematic approach to 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 uh, choral writing right uh, the first part can you elaborate a bit uh, what uh, how these magnificent settings are constructed well uh, first of all you have to realize that they are strongly tied to liturgical practice in hamburg which are these vespers mm. where the main was the main liturgical chant and these uh, settings are made for alternation singing and performance but at the same time they had also a representative fraction they were not only on liturgical music but they were also something to, to demonstrate the organist's art and in the case of Scheidemann was tried to use every technique he had at his disposal into these four verses of the of the Magnificat settings um, so counter film setting indeed often with the pedal playing the tenor part, uh, Fantasia, which are the most important verses, where you can use all kinds of different devices, especially also echo, but also very virtuosic right-hand solos, uh, you name it. Um, then you had a part which is like a fugue in later terminology, and then there was a part which was kind of concluding short verse, which was rather backward-looking, which I find rather fascinating because Scheidemann uh, looks like Scheidemann wants to say 
I can write all this modern music, but I'm also very much tied to the tradition. And these last verses sound like swelling modernized. Wonderful description of, of these techniques uh, uh, hidden in, in these each of the four verses in, uh, in, in the Magnificent Cycles. You know what fascinates me? Uh, it's like a compendium of, uh, of Scheidemann's, Scheidemann's polyphonic techniques, right? Uh, in fact, Karen Nelson wrote a dissertation, uh, right? Um, um, uh, t- uh, basically with the main thesis that these magnificent uh, settings might be used or might have been used as a teaching aid for improvisation. Uh, do you agree with this? Yes, uh, completely. Uh, you, but you must realize that the whole uh, organ, organist art of Scheidemann and the Circle was centered around um, teaching, improvising, and playing compositions and writing compositions yourself. Mm-hmm. So it was one uh, flexible field what you were covering. And in Hamburg, there was a big tradition of these. When you got settings, many must have, have been improvised. There is no question about that. So these we've got settings of Scheidemann might be a reflection of the best verses he had improvised, for example. Mm-hmm. And there is also a kind of development into it, which I describe in my dissertation. So they are both reflecting improvisation, but they are also reflecting composition in itself, which was the art which they learned from. Uh, Swaling in the first place, because it's not that amazing that Swaling got so many students from Germany. What was amazing, what is amazing, that so many of these German students are good composers, which cannot be a coincidence. What I learned was not only good organ playing improvisation, but also good composition. Mm-hmm. True. So this is, this is all uh, related to each other. So, our modern-day organists who are listening to this probably should be also aware of of the of the curriculum that that Swellings or Scheidemann's era organist had. They had what they had not only to play, but they had to write, compose, basically, and also improvise. Right. So that's. Probably uh, modern-day organists should also be uh, inspired to do as well, don't you? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, and um, for example, these preambula, many of them are clearly uh, based on improvisation models, which you can rather learn rather easily. That's my experience, and to some degree, that is also also for these growl creations or these magic creations. Yes, wonderful. So, uh, when we talk about uh, Scheidemann, you mentioned the the Hamburg organ uh, and its uh, characteristics and how they different from the Swellings and Amsterdam organ. Probably we should also talk a little bit about the way they notated music in the scores in those days, right? It was completely different from modern day notation, isn't it? Yes, uh, this Swelling tradition of, so to speak, composing organists um, had also the special future of notation. Well, tablet notation is, of course, an, uh, an old way of 
notating keyboard music, which was developed in the 15th century and had its greatest flowering in the 16th. But after the turn of the century, so after 1600, it, it, it uh, went away very quickly. The new Italian interpolatura, the modern notation, so to speak, uh, was fastly uh, uh, being accepted everywhere, including with Swaling, for example, he wrote on two times six lines, we know. So he was not into telephone notation. But his pupils had this German tradition of telenotation, and they used it to uh, define their craft, their special craft. For example, from Reinken we know that he thought himself as the highest musician in Hamburg. So not a cantor or a, uh, the city music director, no, the organist it was. And he got the best uh, paid job uh, at the end. Books do the uh, same thing. So they considered themselves like a special class of musicians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because they were able to play very complex music, compose it and play it, and give it to their students, and the best way to protect this is to use this kind of secret code of tablet notation, which had died out in practice, and nobody else could do anything with it except this small circle of um, specialized organists. Mm -hmm. And we should probably mention Johann Sebastian Bach. He he was also aware of this notation, right, when he uh, composed Orgelbüchlein, at least. Yes. Mm -hmm. Of course, we know now that. Uh, Bach copied, uh, Bach's earliest manuscripts are copies of Buxtude and Reinken in television notation mm. that was discovered a few years ago, which is an amazing discovery. And here you see that Bach was raised in this tradition as well. Mm. And when he needed uh, uh, this notation, for example, when he ran out of space, he used it, for example, in the Orgelbüchlein this notation. There's also a very interesting early Fantasia by uh, Jan Sebastian Bach, which he wrote down completely in terror notation, which I think is in the Andreas Bach book. Um, and it is not so well known yet, but it's a beautiful piece. But it's a very special piece because he wrote it in terror notation and there are no other copies. So he never gave it to his students. Well, all his other music he gave freely and <laughs> this Fantasia is in kind of old-fashioned improvisatory style, polyphonic but improvisatory, and he wrote it down in the secret writing. So that's a very interesting example of Bach's um, dealing with his North German tradition, and he was really uh, the last uh, important representative of the tradition. Mm -hmm. And this this old uh, North German organ tablature notation, I think. Um, can we imagine that those days organists uh, would more easily play from that notation than from Italian score? I don't think so. You no, that's, no. This has also to do with this whole uh, tradition of improvising, but also of memorization. Mm -hmm. And these scores, well, several, which are, uh, I've seen many of them in German libraries, they are usually in impeccable condition. They were, I think, usually kept as archive pieces, mm. which they consulted, but which they did not really play from it, is my impression. They learned it from memory, they consulted it uh, to, to fresh up the memory, I think. They wrote it down very carefully, and it was kept as a kind of treasure. Mm -hmm. 
teaching period, from their learning period. And you are talking about the tablature notation now, right? Tablature notation. And what changed with the Italian notation? Was it easier to play this way for them? Or uh, was it more fascinating? During the... Uh, Sharman, of course, could also read it. Mm -hmm. He uh, had learned it with Swaling. And uh, we know now that he probably owns one of the Toccata books by Frescobaldi, which is the, the earliest sign of Frescobaldi in North Germany. So he played it already. It has a few pieces you have to see already Frescobaldi influence, and it becomes, of course, much stronger with Reinken and Buxtehude. They absorb it really into their organ music and of course, then you see that they could read it very well and uh, learn that music mm -hmm. from this notation. Uh, amazing insight. Uh, today's organist probably would even uh, ha have a hard time imagining how to read, how to even uh, decipher, right? Can you g give us a little bit of a hint how to do this uh, in general terms? Uh, yes, you have to learn the uh, peculiarities of the, the writers, but most of them are very neat. This has to do with this idea of that you write it down for eternity to preserve in, in, in your um, uh, your uh, collection and eventually give it to your student. So uh, it is not uh, easy writing to read. There are too many things to 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 see when you, while you are playing, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it is actually great for archive reasons because it takes up so little paper. True. And it's two, two or three times as economical as uh, modern notation. In Scheidemann's day, for example, the duties of organist in his city, in Hamburg, for example, what uh, what does uh, what did the organist had to do? Play, write, improvise, write. What else did he have to accompany the choir or or um, or not? Uh, yes, they had to accompany the choir. That was one of the main requirements, also, mm -hmm. and more and more important. For example, in the um, organism probe, the organist tests of mm -hmm. Reckmann in 1655. It was required that he could play continue well. That was one of the jobs he had to do in this test. So that was also part of the organist's duty. And very important is also the, um, the idea that the choir was always present and if it wasn't present in the church, the organist had to play the same piece as the choir. Exactly. But so had, so the, 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 the church goers were expecting the same motet, mm -hmm. but then from the organist. And of course I could elaborate on it. So what what did uh, Scheidemann and his pupils did uh, in those days? Probably they took the the open score notation, right? And they played in tabulations, right? Improvisations based on the uh, texture of the motet. Can yes. you describe the process how it's done? Uh, yes, actually I think they were used to accompany it from a figured bass part, for example, and then they heard it every year, every month, every Sunday, they heard these motets, so they were in their heads. They could just take the continuum part, put it on the organ, and play the complete motet, I think. And, of course, they knew the lines so well, that gave them 
much freedom to make figurations on it while they were playing it. Ah, so you're saying you're you're saying that they're not playing from the open score, but rather from the continuum. That was not necessary. Uh -huh. open score. That's that's a modern theory, but I don't believe it. Mm -hmm. Because there were hardly any open scores. All these collections were with, were uh, printed in parts. Parts, exactly. So you, you had this base part where your company is from, and after some years, you knew these motors so well. You just needed this reminder of the harmonies, and you could play all these lines on the top of them easily. Mm -hmm. That's, that's my theory about it. When you look at, at for example, Scheidemann's motet intabulations, uh, uh, the, the famous one, Verbo Caro Factum Est, right? Uh, it's, it reminds us of the famous uh, motet by Orlando di Lasso, but, but it also is completely different, or very organistic, right? What what specific organistic features does it does it take to create such a fabulous fantasia like this? Yes, it, it, sometimes he, some of his motet interpolations are stick pretty close. You can recognize the motets very well, but a few he turns almost into a choral fantasia in itself, and you hardly recognize the motets uh, anymore. So this this process of um, knowing the motet and elaborating on it went very far mm -hmm. and this is also this uh, combination idea of, of Scheidemann who created this uh, fantasy already then he even combined it with Mutat interpolation which is rather brilliant I think mm -hmm. and uh, original motets for example by Lassus by by Hieronymus Pretorius for example these vocal pieces uh, were they famous for the churchgoers in their airs or not so famous, do you think? Yes, for example, he um, used some very well-known uh, motets by Orlando di Lasso. I think they were just favorites in the church. Mm -hmm, favorites. Yes, really. And uh, um, uh, I'm talking now, I'm thinking about the modern performers, for example, who are taking uh, famous um, uh, choral pieces or even famous tunes from the movies, films, right, from Hollywood and try to do their own arrangements. But usually their arrangements, organistic arrangements, are rather dull, let's say, v very much uh, in, uh, in the mode of the, of the original, right? Uh, maybe some kind of melody and register changed here and there, but not, nothing very um, creative about that. But if, if our modern day organist would be inspired to look at the techniques that Scheidemann did, um, don't you think that modern arrangements of vocal music and theater and film music would be so much more artistically pleasing. Yes, I think so. These pieces give great models to, to use it yourself. But you have to be very familiar with the original, of course. Mm -hmm. I think these organists played these motets, then they replaced the choir, and then they got bored, of course, by these simple lines, because yeah, they are not so effective anymore. You don't have all these colorful voices mixing uh, in a choir. You have to substitute for it. It's too simple in the organ, so you add figurations, you add different use of manuals, etc. 
Well, uh, Peter, it's I'm I'm conscious of your of your time, of course, and uh, I would I would talk to you for hours and hours, of course, if I had <laughs> if I had the privilege. But um, but uh, for the ending part of our conversation, can you um, do you feel that we are as organist and uh, and um, keyboardist continuing the spelling tradition even to this day? Yes, I think so, because, um, well, the swelling tradition more or less ends with Bach, but of course Bach is not an ending. Mm -hmm. it, it's, uh, it lives on, even after Z, there are many organists who continue that tradition, and that of course was so influential in the 19th century when they rediscovered all his music, and then it became really big. And this organ art, especially the organ art using obligato pedal, which goes back to this Hamburg tradition, really. So uh, even if you play a symphony by Vierne with obligato pedal, it goes back to Hamburg. It's really important to realize because it had no tradition uh, almost at all in any other country. So you can say this tradition is the basis of all uh, 19th and 20th century organ And of course, uh, the the great organ reform movement, which which tra was transferred not only f in Europe but f across the Atlantic, and uh, made big, huge influence in in the art of organ building, right? Yes, of course. It the comes from that time. Yeah, the, mo the most famous name in organ building became the principal North German builder, which is Schnitger. Mm. So that is also enormous influence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So wonderful, Peter. Um, can you uh, let us a little bit into your world? Uh, uh, can you tell us what are your current projects right now? Oh, yes. Well, I um, we are finishing uh, with Breitkopf and Hessel the complete edition of Bach's organ music. There are now, uh, I think, seven volumes out already. So there are three more to go. So we are working on that. Uh, that's that's important. But I uh, I do smaller things on North German music. For example, one or two years uh, a volume of Buxuda studies of mine will appear. But that takes uh, some uh, work still to do. Mm -hmm. Any any book you are writing about any about any organ subject? Uh, no, only this this uh, volume of books or the studies, mm -hmm. which uh, some articles which elaborate and add some new material to. So that will cover most of uh, books or the um, music. Wonderful. So, um, of course. Uh, uh, our listeners are curious to know more about your work and uh, and uh, what you have been doing. Can you give us a, li a link online where they can find you and your work? Yes, of course. Uh, I have the inevitable website, which is www.peterderksen.nl, Netherlands. Wonderful. I'll make sure I'll in include this this uh, this link into the description of this conversation. So, uh, Peter, you've been so 
tremendously generous with your ideas and I, I hope that people from around the world will feel inspired to continue this swelling tradition uh, and you are certainly the part of this of this legacy and continuing this thank you so much have a great uh, health and amazing creativity ahead of you thank you too Peter thank you bye bye if you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog Secrets of Organ Playing at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vida Spinkavichus. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch you online really soon.